Well, today we're going to start a brand new teaching series that will last us for the next few weeks called Hidden Hope. Uh, there are so many places in the Bible, especially the New Testament, namely the New Testament, where the story of Jesus is the main point. It is front and center. It is very obvious. But in the Old Testament, there are all of these places where Jesus isn't fully revealed. And so he is, he's there, but he's hinted at, he's referenced in, the, in, in between the lines of the story or the bits of poetry that we read there. And so we're going to spend the next few weeks kind of looking at some really important themes and ideas from that Old Testament perspective, these places that talk about Jesus that aren't as overt as the New Testament is. And the first idea we're going to talk about today is the idea of relationships. Now, relationships are an incredibly important, necessary part of human existence. They just are. We all need relationships. Even the most isolated, introverted person is still made to need relationships. But the thing about relationships is that they are messy, and complicated. I mean, it doesn't matter how well you get along with a person. It doesn't matter uh, how compatible two people are. There's always going to be one component of a relationship that m- tends to mess everything up, and that component is the people in the relationship. We, we're just m- a mess. We tend to do things that are selfish and negative and hurtful and vindictive, and It is impossible to be in a relationship of any significant level of depth and intimacy and not have some kind of conflict along the way. That just goes with the territory. Um, I remember a girl I dated in college. uh, There was one day we were having a fight. I don't have a clue what we were fighting about. I'm sure it was, you know, really important as, you know, many of the fights that, you know, 18, 19-year-olds get into. And so it was, we we were fighting about something, and it was just dragging on and on and on, and I was just so tired of fighting. Like, I'd, I wasn't going to budge. She wasn't budging, but I just remember being so tired of fighting. But I could also tell, like, this fight isn't even anywhere near over. Like, we still got a while to go in this. And so I just wanted to break. And so I, rem- I don't remember what I said, but I intentionally said something really mean in the hopes that she would huff off and go into another room so that we could just have a break. And I was successful in that. And again, I don't remember what I, what I said. I don't remember what we were fighting about. I don't even remember who was at fault. Probably wasn't me, though, right? Um, but I do, I do know this. The thing that I said was not at all helpful. Um, but that's kind of what we do, right? When we are in relationships, we are going to be selfish sometimes. And when we fight, we're not always going to fight cleanly. And because of the messiness and brokenness that often comes in relationships, it should be no surprise that... We're going to have to put in some work to repair those relationships. That also goes with the territory. The brokenness of a relationship requires effort. Sometimes it's going to be a a heartfelt apology where you humbly say, I was wrong, and that doesn't get any easier with time, does it? You know, I thought, boy, you know, getting married, you know, I want to be a good husband, and I want to be, say I'm sorry, and I'm sure I'll get really good at it as time goes on. No, that just never, never gets easier to say, I was wrong. No elbows, please, to your spouse, online or in the room. Um, But sometimes to repair a relationship requires two people to kind of, or maybe one person in the relationship to at least acknowledge or prove that we're not going to retread 
the past. We're not going to go back and relive and, and recreate those moments of pain. We, we're going to move forward and try to be different moving uh, into the future. Uh, sometimes uh, it helps to repair a relationship through some kind of a grand gesture that says, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to be this kind of person. I didn't mean to hurt you. I'm sure there's been plenty of flowers sent by people in this room and probably received by people in this room or those of you watching online. And, and so there, when a relationship experiences brokenness, there have to be steps that, got, that, that need to be taken, there, or there are steps that must be taken to repair that, to, to take this thing that was broken and knit it back together. Well, just like our relationships with people, That same thing is true of our relationship with God. Only when there's brokenness in our relationship with God, we know that it's not his fault, which is really kind of problematic. We can kind of assume, well, we're the ones who are guilty here. We're the ones that struggle to be faithful. We're the ones who bring evil into this world that he created to be perfect and joyous and blessed. And so in order to repair this relationship between us and God, steps have to be taken to deal with and overcome our very often repeated sin and mistakes. Now, taking steps to take a relationship that was broken and bring it back together, the Bible word for that is atonement. Atonement is bringing together two things that have been separated. And in the Bible, this often talks about some kind of sacrifice um, that gets to be made. But ultimately, the word atonement is, the goal is bringing back together God and his people. Getting, dealing with the sin that often comes between us and our creator. And so this idea of, of making two things one uh, I saw this this week, and I thought it was kind of helpful. So you can look at the word atonement and actually see what it's for, okay? at one Like it's meant to take us and God and make us one again. That's the purpose of atonement. And so as with any relationship that's broken, steps need to be taken to repair it. Now, people have done all sorts of things throughout history to try to make themselves right with their creator. Um, and in ancient Israel, um, we learned from the Old Testament that they had some really complex detailed rituals that they would go through to try to cleanse them of their sin and make them right with God. Some very uh, complicated ways to say, I'm sorry, to God. And one of the, the very, um, probably the most important, was called the Day of Atonement, appropriately. Um, does anybody know the other name for the Day of Atonement that's on our calendars? You'll know it when I say it, probably. Uh, you ever seen it on your calendar, Yom Kippur? You're like, Yom Kippur? If you ever look at the, I have no idea whose holiday this is, but I wish we could celebrate it, right? That's what this is. It's the Jewish Day of Atonement. They still celebrate it. This year it's on September 15th, if you really want to mark your calendars for it. But the Day of Atonement was, again, a day set aside every year for the ancient Israelite people to make atonement, to cleanse out their sins so that they could have a unique close relationship with their creator. So here's what it goes into that in Leviticus chapter 16. And everybody always loves it when we go to Leviticus. It's always a hoot. It says, And it shall be a statute to you forever, that in the seventh month, which, by the way, their months, they counted it differently than us, because you're like, September is not the seventh month. But anyway, so on the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all 
your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement, wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting, and he shall make atonement, or and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for all the priests and for all the people of the assembly. This shall be a statute forever to you, sorry, statute forever to you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel in the year, or once in the year because of all of their sins. Now, this is this complicated process, and I left out the part where it talks about that process and all the things they got to go through. Um, to, again, cleanse the sin is the idea, to purify the people. Because God cannot tolerate sin. He cannot be in the presence of sin because he is so utterly and completely perfect. And so when we invite sin into our lives and, and, in, and inflict our evil on the world, God can't be around us in that state. You see this in the Garden of Eden where it talks about God walking with Adam and Eve in the garden and then they sinned and then God casts them out of Eden. They can't be in his presence anymore. That's the idea here. We cannot have this relationship with God when we have this sin in our lives. And so the purpose of the Day of Atonement was to cleanse not just the people but also the place where they came to interact with God. Because in ancient Israel... God came to this tabernacle, was the first thing, this tent of meeting. Later on, they'd build a permanent temple in Jerusalem. But for many hundreds of years, they just met in this tent. They came to God to offer their sacrifices in a tent that housed the Ark of the Covenant and all that. Which that's, if you don't know what that is, watch the first Indiana Jones. That'll help you out a little bit. Don't totally take your idea of what the Ark of the Covenant is from Indiana Jones. But anyway, uh, so you can, they, and so they would cleanse not only the people of their sins, but it was to cleanse this tabernacle, this tent, or later on the temple. Um, because the way it works, at least the way the Bible explains it, is that sin is, is very contagious. It spreads. Now, we've thought a lot about this kind of stuff in the last year, right? Um, one thing I've seen that was kind of helpful in understanding just what it means to have something to be contagious and for something to spread, um, was there's been a lot of YouTube videos to kind of highlight how things and germs spread over the last year to kind of help us understand that. One of the best ones is from a guy named Mark Rober. Um, he does some really cool YouTube videos. And, and one of them he did was he put this clear liquid, can't see it, until you turn on a black light, and then it glows. He put it on his hands, and then he just kind of went about his morning and, he, and then he, he even had a time where he said, uh, I'm going to try not to even touch my face because that's, you know, you touch something that's got a bacteria on it or something, and then you touch your face, and that's how you get sick. And so he said, I'm going to try this whole morning not to touch my face. And so he goes about his day, and then he goes around his house with a black light, and that stuff was everywhere. He just put a little bit on his fingers, and it was absolutely everywhere. And much to his chagrin, it was on his face as well. And he was like, no, I thought I nailed it. But it was, it was interesting because everything he touched, and then if he used that to something else, it was on doorknobs, light switches. He just, you know, does a little nose itch that you do without even thinking about it. And it was interesting to see how this touched that, that touched that, and it spreads that way. Um, and sin is pictured as operating kind of the same way. And so the people were the ones that committed the sin, but when they came to the temple, came to this tent of meeting to offer their sacrifices, it was like their impurity 
was rubbed off on that place over the course of the year. And so once a year, not only were the people, did they need to be cleansed, but this place where God came down needed to be cleansed so that it was clean and pure. And so they could have this, again, place to be brought together in a relationship. And so the, the, that's what the, this Day of Atonement really was. And um, it was so incredibly specific Because God can't tolerate sin or unholiness, what happens is people that entered God's presence with sin on them, still or in an unworthy manner, let me say it that way, they could die. There's a story in Leviticus 10 of two priests who uh, tried to come in and do this little ceremony that God did not ask them to do, and as a way to kind of say, you know, sorry for our sin and, and that kind of thing. And as they were starting this little ceremony, fire shot out of the tent. And killed them. Like, that's just so mind-blowingly crazy um, for them to be trying to do something good, but to do it in a way that God didn't specify, because that's how serious sin was. You had to walk into this process very in a very specific way, and um, there, it's not in the Bible, but there's even... Um, in some Jewish literature, there's talk of the fact that when the priest would go into uh, this most holy place on the Day of Atonement to offer a sacrifice uh, to cleanse it, that they would tie a rope to the priest that just in case he did something wrong and died. That way they could drag the body out and they wouldn't have to sit there and smell it to get it until the next year came around. Like, that's how seriously these people took it. And you can kind of understand the idea of doing something wrong here. Um, if you've ever seen somebody apologize for something, but in, but in a really bad way. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It, so maybe you've done that, where you say, I'm sorry, but not in words that are helpful. Um, you know, one of the most common things we do when we're in a fight with someone is we try to shift the old blame, right? Because I always assume, like you probably assume, I'm not the one who's wrong. Otherwise, I wouldn't be fighting. You know, I didn't do anything wrong here. I'm perfect and wonderful, and the problem is always on them. And, and some people will carry that same attitude into the apology. Like, if you've ever seen a guy say something like, I'm sorry for what I said, I forgot how emotional you can be. Like, that guy needs a duck because something's getting ready to fly at his head because that is the wrong, dumb way to say something. And there are ways to try to say sorry that are not particularly helpful. Well, that was kind of the case here. And so everybody took the Day of Atonement with incredible seriousness. They were very serious and sincere about it. Not just the priests, because actually it was only one priest involved in carrying out all these rituals and cleansing the temple and offering these sacrifices. But the people were also instructed to take it very, very seriously. They were to stay home. It was a day of fasting. It was a day uh, of no work. Um, it, was, it said, you notice a couple of times it said, afflict yourselves. Uh, that was just a way of, of them saying um, to humble yourself. Like, take some time to sit and spend your day thinking about the fact that your sin is the problem. That this whole day needs to be taken care of because we have brought sin into this relationship that we've had with God, that we have messed things up. And so they were meant to take this incredibly seriously. There's even other places where it instructs the people of Israel to do nothing that day that would bring them pleasure at all. Which, for me, if you want to ensure that I have a day where there's no pleasure, you take out the food, which is that's what they did. Like, that's like my favorite thing in the world is to eat. 
curse this quarantine. And, and so that was my, that's like the, the number one way, right, to ruin my day, which that was taken care of for them. But then um, what would happen? The priest would, the, kind of the main event, he would bring two goats into the temple. And one goat um, would be sacrificed and, and his blood would be drained, and that was the blood that he then took around, the priest took around, and sprinkled on strategic parts of the temple of this most holy room. Um, the way that the tabernacle and later the temple were set up, um, think like a target with like these concentric rings, right? And, and the closer you got to the middle was like the holy spot. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. And then, um, so the closer you got, that was kind of representative of how close you were getting to God. And so they would go into this room, the most holy of holies, and sprinkle blood in places. They would go out on the tent and sprinkle blood in places. And, and then the other goat, the priest would come to it, he'd put his hands on the goat, and he'd confess the sins of the people. And this was like a symbolic transference of all the sins of Israel onto this goat. And then they would take that goat out outside the city and let it go into the wilderness. So one, sin, or one goat was kind of this covering up sin, paying for the sins of the people. And the other goat was kind of this symbolic casting out of sins, the sins being removed from the people of Israel, called the scapegoat, which is still a very strong um, metaphor that we use today. And, and so this yearly ritual was something they would do all uh, year after year, always repeated, so that not only could they be cleansed, but they would have a clean place, a pure place to come in and interact with God. Now, the uh, focus verse for this week of our Core 52 journey through the Bible comes from Isaiah 53, uh, verse 5. It's one of those places where now we realize it was clearly talking about Jesus, um, but in ancient Israel, they didn't understand the true fulfillment of these verses. But these verses talk not about an animal sacrifice, but as if a person was going to be the sacrifice. Isaiah 53, 5 says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Now, there's this pretty long poem in Isaiah 52 and 53 that paints this clear picture that Jesus would come to be that same kind of sacrifice that was offered on the Day of Atonement, that he would bear the weight of the sins of the people, and he would suffer and die as a sacrifice in our place, only that Jesus wouldn't do it, be, give this kind of sacrifice that had to be repeated over and over and over again, but that he would be this once and for all atonement between God and his people. The New Testament book of Hebrews explains it this way. It says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities... It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Meaning that so much of the Old Testament and the law and the sacrifices and all that stuff, those were hinting at Jesus. They were like foreshadowing Jesus. And, and they were kind of a, an impure version of what Jesus would ultimately come to be. And so um, he's saying those, things, those sacrifices... And offering those goats and, and stuff, that was never going to be enough to truly cover the sins of the people. That's why they had to come back and do it over and over and over again. Because it was a lesser thing. It was a, a, a shadow of what was to come. And then we get a little bit more information, a little bit farther down in Hebrews 10. It says, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God 
waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, um, last year, there, I don't know, again, some people, you had busier years, but um, for church stuff, it got to be a pretty bare year. There weren't a lot of projects to be done. And so I, I got to thinking, you know, is there anything that you know, we've been talking about that's maybe overdue that maybe we could slip into this year since there's kind of a break? And so one thing I suggested to the leadership was, do we want to do something with the outside of the parsonage? If you don't know, a parsonage is a house the church owns and the minister gets to live there. And what had been done since the house was built in 1974 was they would, they'd repaint it every few years like a lot of people do for their houses, right? And what happens with anything that's outside any house? The paint gets worn, it, you know, mildew grows on certain sides of the house, you know, there's mud dauber nests in those high places you can't quite reach, that kind of stuff, you know? And so every few years, somebody come, we come along, clean it up, put on a fresh coat of paint, brighten everything up. And so I remember sitting in our meeting, what are we going to do with, this, with the parsonage, you know? And there was the talk, and it was nice because everybody was like for doing something, so that's good. You know, as the person who lives there, it was good. But we kind of talked like, well, what if we just paint it again? But that's a lot of work to, you know, scrape paint, you know, clean it, put new coat of paint. It's, all, it's a lot of work, right? But then you start talking about alternatives like, what if we put on siding? What if we put new siding up? Well, that's a lot more expensive than a few buckets of paint, right? And so as we were going back and forth and the guys were talking about it, um, I didn't say a whole lot because I felt bad. I felt like it was a little self-serving to put my two cents in too often, so I tried to restrain. But I remember Dan Newman said a little rhyme that I'd never heard before, and maybe you've heard it. I had never heard it because I don't have any skills that are useful outside of the church setting. Um, but he said, well, you know, guys, it's cheaper to paint, but vinyl is final. You ever heard that? I'd never heard that. Meaning that if we take the time, bite the bullet, invest the money, put on some vinyl siding, and if it's done right, it'll last years. The vinyl doesn't wear off like the paint does. It doesn't fade like the paint does. It's, you know, pretty well resistant to a lot of stuff, right? And so you do it, and you do it right, and then it's done, and you don't have to worry about the next time you have to paint it. And so that was what the decision was, and it, you know, made it quite a difference, right? Well, in the same way, the Day of Atonement, it was basically a fresh coat of paint getting slapped over something that, that you know, was just going to wear out, get dirty, and you'd have to do it again eventually in the future. Whereas Jesus was like that, his offering, his sacrifice on the cross was this final solution. Because these animals, they're like an order below us in, in, on the creative order, right? So their blood, their sacrifice was never going to be enough to cover not just the sins of, of us who are higher on the ladder of creative things, but also the immensity of human sin. I mean, we bring a ton of evil into the world, and so there's no way that their sacrifice was ever going to be enough to cover that. But Jesus was so good and so great that when he came down, his sacrifice was good enough once and for all. Jesus was the vinylist final solution. And as dumb as maybe a reference that is, is to say Jesus is the vinyl siding of our faith, or whatever you want to call it, um, it it changed the game because that's, because that's how the Israelites worked. It was, I made my offering, and now I'm going to go. But they always had a plan for that next trip back to make an offering. 
It was just a regular part of who they were and how they worshiped God. But to be free to say, no, this relationship that we have with God is made right once and for all. It's taken care of. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice for our sin, past, present, and future. It's done. Now, you'll notice here, there's kind of this two levels of language here where it says um, that he, his single offering has perfected. Right? He has perfected. That sounds very permanent and it's done. Meaning that he took our record of wrongs and did away with it so that we stand before God. Everybody who's a Christian stands before God as perfect, as if we've never sinned. But then it also says he perfected those who were being sanctified. So perfect sounds like done, over with, you know, finished, but then the being sanctified sounds like a work in progress. And that's where we find ourselves, kind of in this in-between state where our relationship with God is, it, it's good, it's together. There's, our sins have been taken care of and forgiven and the offering has been made, but yet we aren't yet perfect. And so we're still going to make our mistakes and we're still going to not be the people that God wants us to be. And that can be really hard for us to figure out. And if we're not careful, we will go back into thinking like um, kind of this ancient way of thinking where we feel like we've got to keep coming back to God and, and kind of remaking things right all over again. Um, I know one thing I've struggled with over and over again in my uh, years as a Christian is guilt. Because, you know, I just would feel like, oh, I'm just not good enough for God. And, and I have times, moments, sometimes prolonged seasons where I knew I was just doing things not the way God wanted me to do them. And I feel really bad. And oh my God, I know he doesn't probably even like me right now. And I feel really bad that I'm not being the person he wants me to be. And I'd really kind of beat myself up and I'd feel guilty. And um, I notice in these seasons, I tend to read my Bible less. You know, it's almost like I don't even want to, fe- I don't even gonna go, go there because then I might have to look God in the eye and admit everything I'd done wrong, that kind of stuff. And so I would, I would just kind of be carrying around this guilt and this shame, and a lot of people feel that way. Um, I even have this kind of um, thought in the back of my head, boy, I hope I don't die today, because I know God doesn't like me today. I know he doesn't love me today, because I'm too dirty and too inappropriate and too, too sinful for him to like me. And, and then I'd have these seasons like, okay, I'm going I'm to say I'm sorry, and I'm going to really try hard this. I'm going to try to be all that God wants me to be. And I'd have times, you know, where I'd, you know, do the things I thought I was doing. I'd be at church all the time, and I'd be giving, and I'd be, you know, trying to be nice to people, and trying to be a real good, faithful Christian, and I'd feel okay, like, okay, good. Now, this is what it is. This is what a Christian should feel like. I'm good with God because I'm doing good things. But you know what happened eventually? I'd do something dumb again, and I'd slip right back, and oh, I feel so bad, and, and I would just continue in the cycle of feeling pretty prideful when I did good, and then guilty and shameful when I did bad, and I'd carry this around. And I think a lot of Christians walk in that cycle. But this back and forth of, I'm good with God today, but not tomorrow, that mindset is the old way of thinking. That's where you, you feel like, I've got to come and be good enough for God. That's that I've got to come and make atonement for this thing. No, Jesus did it. He made us right with God so that even on our worst days, our relationship with God is still intact. We can still come to God and say, Father, I'm, you know, I'm sorry for what I did, but we don't have to jump through hoops. We don't have to make an offering. We don't have to think, if I come to church and pray hard enough, then I can come back and be good with God. None of that stuff has to be done. We always have this relationship with God because in Christ, we are perfected. Now, the daily journey then is, I need to try to be better. 
by the grace and mercy of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit living in me, every day is a choice to wake up and try to submit who I am and live in a way that honors God. And so Jesus is this ultimate sacrifice, though, so that we don't have to keep feeling like, I'm saved, I'm not saved, I'm saved, I'm not saved, I'm saved, I'm not saved. We don't have to keep doing that dance, which a lot of Christians do. And honestly, you know what? It's exhausting. And there's a lot of people, I think, walking away from faith. By the way, that's a big theme in our culture right now is people releasing their deconstruction stories, their stories of how they walked away from the, the trap of faith is how it's often worded. And usually one of the common themes is, I got tired of feeling like I wasn't good enough. I got tired of feeling so guilty for not being good enough for God and all the hoops I had to jump through. But that's the point of Jesus being this true, lasting atonement for us. It's that we don't have to carry that guilt and shame, even on our worst days. But here's, here's the, the real backwards thinking that took me a while to get into, is that even on the days when I was feeling really good about myself, like I'm helping people, I'm giving enough to the church, I serve today, I can't, I've got like four weeks in a row, perfect attendance, I'm doing it all. Even in my perfect best moment, I still wasn't good enough. I still wasn't good enough to earn this entrance into um, a relationship with God. I still hadn't done enough good things to overcome all the bad things in my past to make atonement. No, even my best isn't good enough. That's why I need Jesus. That's why you need Jesus. He is your atonement. And that is something that can bring us rest and freedom so that we don't have to walk this exhausting road of, I'm a spiritual superhero today. Oh no, I messed up. God must hate me today. Hope I don't get by a bus because I'm sure I'll go to hell because I did a bad thing, said a bad thing, thought a bad thing, whatever it might be. We have freedom. This is why Jesus said his burden is light so that we can not keep entering back into this self shameful cycle of feeling bad about every sin. Should we take sin lightly? No. Should we try to walk away from it? Absolutely. But we should not feel defeated every time we mess up. That's not the point. Jesus covers our sins so that when we sin, we shouldn't feel, oh, poor me, bad me, I'm terrible. We should think, that was really dumb. I shouldn't have done that. I'm glad God is so good. I'm glad Jesus is so great. I'm glad he made this sacrifice for me so that right now, even though I just messed up, I can still go to God, my Father, and know that my faith and my eternity is secure. Our moments of sin should lead to humility and gratitude and praise of God rather than just beating ourselves up over and over and over again. Romans chapter 5 says it this way. It says, therefore, since we have been justified, made right with God by faith, we have peace that's what, peace, meaning God's not mad at you anymore for your dumb stuff. And guess what? Here's the thing. I, it, it's kind of a back to the future time paradox kind of weird thing to think about. But you are forgiven of the sins you haven't even sinned yet. And for those of you that are younger, you haven't even gotten started sinning. Your best sins are ahead of you. <laughs> That's a b- bad way to say it. But you know what I mean, right? Your biggest sins are probably ahead of you. And Jesus has already died and forgiven you for those sins you haven't even sinned yet so that we can keep coming back to God because we have peace, even though at times we are not perfect. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Through him, we have also obtained access, meaning we can come to God anytime. We can stand into his presence anytime by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So, to receive atonement of Christ is ultimate freedom. To have all the guilt, all the shame, the weight of your wrong and imperfections lifted off of you. So that you can truly approach God and have this amazing relationship that will endure through eternity. Now again, not so that you can be like, whew, Jesus covered everything. I can go jump into the deep end of sin and really have fun. That's not the point. But it's so that you can have this unhindered access to God that changes you and transforms you day in and day out. This relationship that we have with God is meant to be a transformative one. And so through his death on the cross, Jesus brought us peace with God by being our absolute, perfect, once-for-all atonement. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the grace and mercy that we have received through Jesus. I pray that we would understand the the once-for-all aspect of Jesus' sacrifice. I think... In the ancient world, instead of carrying this self-imposed prison of guilt and shame where we felt like we had to make up for our mistakes, what they did, they came and brought an actual sacrifice, and that made them be able to walk away and feel good about themselves. And We come to you on after sin sometimes, and we try to make it up by giving more, serving more, reading the Bible more, praying more, but those things aren't what make us Christians. Those things are not what give us eternity secured in heaven. Those Things, uh, anything we do, that's not how it works. What We become saved by the grace and mercy of Jesus, by the work of Jesus on the cross. And so I pray that we would be a people who can understand and truly live in the freedom that Jesus died to give us. So that we can live every day, not beating ourselves up with guilt. Because you know what, we're, we're, we're always going to find things to regret, things to not be proud of. We're always going to be able to pick apart our imperfections. And... It's good to notice those so that we can work on them, but we, we, we in Christ are able to come to you now, Father, and, and say thank you. I'm so glad that that one moment, that one season, that one day, that one year of mistakes don't determine my eternity because of what Jesus did for me. He died to cover up my past, all of my shortcomings, so that I can know you and have a relationship with you forever. What an amazing, amazing gift. And I pray that, that we would be able to take these Bible words that can be kind of confusing, like atonement, and truly understand what a joy this is for us, what this truly means for our lives and our relationship with you. And so we thank you for Jesus being our once-for-all sacrifice, so that any day we mess up from here on out, we don't have to carry the guilt and the shame, but we can come to you with gratitude and freedom and praise your good name for the obedience of your son and the, the, the sacrifice of sending him to die on the cross for us so that we could be free even though we don't deserve it, so that we could be declared perfect even though we really aren't perfect yet. And so help us, Father, to day by day be more perfect. But again, not so that we can feel prideful, but just so that we can honor the God who has done so much for us. It's in Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen.